God wants us. He predestines us. He calls us to live a godly life, live in a way that pleases him to have a daily life that is acceptable to him and his power his power that raised christ from the dead is enabling us to do this you're listening to reformed womanhood with anna walker where we seek to reform the lives of women in all ages and stages with the truth of the bible we are in second peter 1 1 through 4 and notice what the first word of this book is Simeon. Think about this. Second Peter is one of the New Testament letters that has the most questions about who the author is. It is then ironic that one of the New Testament books that has the most debate about who wrote it begins with the author's name. Did you notice that your version probably has Simeon instead of Simon, as you may expect? Simeon is the Hebrew version of the name. Simon is the Greek. So there's only one other place in the New Testament that Simon Peter is spelled Simeon, which is in the book of Acts. And the small detail of how he spells his name supports the fact that Peter himself actually wrote this epistle. So Simon Peter, that's who's writing the letter. This letter, it's his final one. It's his last legacy. Verse 14 tells us that Peter knew his death was coming. He's probably writing in the mid-60s, likely writing from Rome as he approached martyrdom. These are his final words to likely Gentile Christians that were spread all over Asia Minor. Don't you think these early Christians must have leaned in a bit here? Can you imagine them running to their mailboxes, eager with anticipation when they unrolled the papyri and saw Simon Peter as the author? The Messiah that had lived and died and resurrected only about 30 years prior. This Peter had been with him and had been one of the inner friends of Christ. What was Peter going to say? What would you say if you had spent the last 30 years of your life traveling and preaching and ministering, writing and investing in these early, early churches? What would your final words be? Well, Peter first identifies himself to these readers. He's a servant and he's an apostle. Friends, we tend to skip over these introductory words of greeting too quickly in the beginning of all of these New Testament letters. And I want to think about them because as we think about them, we see how Peter is basing his entire identity, the entire way he thinks about himself on who he is in Christ. He's not Peter the former fisherman or Peter the one who denied Christ at the rooster's crow or Peter the one who miraculously defied the laws of gravity by walking across the surface of the sea. He is Peter the servant. He is Peter the slave of Christ. At the apex of his apostolic authority, he was a servant first. At the pinnacle of his life, when he could have proclaimed his own position and championed for himself and all that he had done, he instead humbly proclaimed his master. Peter, identifying himself as a servant, said that his identity, his status was not his own, but derived from his master. Friends, let's take a lesson from Peter that 
our identity is not our own. The way we primarily think about ourselves, the way we gauge our success, our satisfaction in life, what gives us the most joy should not be based solely on our job, our motherhood, our homemaking, our ministries, our friends, our family, or even our foes. It is always based on who we are in Christ and the work that he has accomplished for us. Because when our worth, our satisfaction, when just our feelings about our day are based on anything besides being a servant or slave of Christ, that is a system that will avalanche your life into disaster. Because when your worth, when your satisfaction is based on how your day went, well, friends, you know that a three-year-old can make your day not go well, but that does not define your parenting aptitude. You know that jobs have stress, but that does not define your ability. You know that friendships have difficulties, but that does not define your approval. Families have division, but that does not define your acceptance. But when all these above things happen, the stress and frustration and division and discouragement, and you are viewing them through the lens that your satisfaction, your worth, your joy is solely based on being a servant of Christ, you will not fall apart. The disappointments of everyday life will not lead you to despair. So friends, what in everyday life destroys you, frustrates you, disappoints you, Those are the things that you could perhaps be looking towards for your own worth instead of viewing yourself as a servant of Christ. If the Apostle Peter viewed himself this way, then certainly we need to. Are we serving ourselves or are we serving our master? When I get irritated that I just mopped the floor and every single person in my family plus the dog is making mud prints across that floor, I am serving my desire for control instead of serving Christ. When I get over the top emotional because of someone else's seeming disapproval of me, I am seeking my value and approval of man instead of viewing myself as a slave to the master. When I'm seemingly irritated by the minor everyday situations, I'm serving myself and my own interests over the interests of a good, kind king. Do you see how this works? Do you see how viewing yourself as a servant of Christ transforms your thinking? How it helps you battle sin and fight for joy in everyday life? When the way you think about yourself is grounded in Christ, when you view yourself as a servant, it transforms your thinking. So practice thinking this way in the upcoming weeks. Say to yourself when disappointments arise, I'm a servant of Christ. See, see how it changes your day, your week, your relationships. Okay, so we are through three words of this letter. We must keep going. Peter identifies himself and then says who he is writing to. He is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's writing to the believers, believers who have obtained or received faith. He's reminding them at the very beginning of this letter that their faith, their faith is a gift of grace, a gift as equal and precious as the faith to the people that knew Christ personally. This word equal here 
It was used for foreigners who had been granted the privileges of citizenship, which were equal to those who are native born. Did you hear that? The word equal. It's used for foreigners who have been granted the privileges of citizenship, which were equal to the people who were native to that country. All believers of every race and place and class and status have the same faith a faith that they are given through the righteousness of their God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This righteousness of Christ is what allows for us to be in a right standing with the Lord. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we, we as believers, are made righteous before the Lord through the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 says that just as a bride adorns herself, he adorns us with robes of righteousness. What a beautiful reminder of the gospel and its truth in our lives at the beginning of this epistle. I think that these first century believers needed this reminder. And I think we need this reminder. We need the reminder of the gift of grace we have been given, of who we are in Christ. We preach this to ourselves moment by moment, day in and day out. These words are not just Peter's way of greeting these believers. They are formative and transformative truth. Truth that, as Peter will say, we need to remind ourselves of. Follow along as I read verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This greeting is a reminder of what we have in Christ as well as a preview of what Peter wants us to grasp. Grace and peace are normal greetings beginning almost every New Testament letter. But Peter adds the explanation that this grace and peace come through the knowledge of Christ. This word knowledge, it is the way we enjoy this grace and peace. This knowledge is personal. It is relational about the character of God and implies some intellectual learning. Listen to what one New Testament scholar says about this knowledge. Grace and peace abound when believers know more about God and come to know God in a deeper way in the crucible of experience. Did you hear that? The crucible of experience. You know what a crucible is? Those containers that melt metals down using very high heat. So then it is those experiences, the circumstances around us are heating up. The situation is becoming dark and hot and we only dimly see through the smoke and flames. It is in those that we just long for grace and peace. And Peter is saying that our grace and peace come through a deeper understanding of who God is. So what situation in your life are you hoping for a bit more grace and peace? It does not come through rehashing the situation a million times with a friend It does not come through rehashing the situation a million times in your head. It does not come through more self-care or self-talk. It comes 
only through the knowledge of who God is. Intimate, personal knowledge that can be lived out. So what does that look like in everyday life? I think it looks something like this. It looks like wishing for grace and peace in the midst of a schedule that is too full and resting in the knowledge that his power is made perfect in your weakness to provide peace. It looks like wrestling with loneliness and going to the knowledge that God will never leave you. It looks like wrestling with frustrations and parenting and going to the knowledge that God will provide wisdom to all who ask. This week in my own life, it's looked like wrestling with fear of not knowing if I would say goodbye to my father and resting in the knowledge of Deuteronomy 32 that his plan is perfect. And then as Isaiah says, even until we are old and gray, he will care for us. We exchange the truth that our hearts want to tell us for the truth of who God is and grace and peace will abound. This is what one author says about the knowledge of who God is. The battleground is between our ears. What is capturing your idle thoughts? What fear or frustration is filling your spare moments? Will you just listen to yourself or will you start talking? No, preaching, not letting your concerns shape you, but forming your concerns by the power of the gospel. And that's how grace and peace abound by forming our concerns by the power of the gospel. And we find this knowledge in the truth of the word. In his greeting, Peter is setting up one of the main themes of the whole book, knowledge and our need for knowledge and our need to grow in it. I think that in these next weeks, we may start sounding like a broken record as we talk about pressing on and striving forward to learn, to grow, and to live it out. Have you ever been planning on making a recipe? You know, you've been planning, you've been preparing for it, and then you get out the first ingredients, you begin to mix things up, and then you realize you're out of one item? Isn't that so frustrating? Do you hate it even more when it's those basic things like vanilla or baking powder or baking soda? It's so insanely frustrating, and perhaps it's the time that you hope you have good neighbors to loan this stuff. Because when you're out of one thing, it stops the whole process, right? You can't really move on. You cannot make what you want to make. I went to cook something a few weeks ago in my house, and I was out of salt because of all of the slime crafting that was happening in my house. You know slime, the the gooey stuff that all elementary-aged kids are into right now that you can make by mixing ingredients like apparently salt together. Do you ever feel this way in your Christian life that you're out of the one thing you need? Patience, kindness, joy, out of just the desire even to press on. These next verses are certainly a reminder that, sister, you are not You are not out of the last thing you need. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. All things, everything. Hear the inclusiveness in that word. Every single thing that is necessary for eternal life and every single thing that is necessary to live a godly life now, 
you have been granted. God wants us. He predestines us. He calls us to live a godly life, live in a way that pleases him, to have a daily life that is acceptable to him. And his power, his power that raised Christ from the dead is enabling us to do this. He is supplying what he is demanding. He is supplying what he is demanding. So friends, this is telling us that there is no reason or rationale, no excuse or exception to continue in sin, to continue in any habit or activity that does not please the Lord. But yet it is not easy. We know this. First Peter says that our passions wage war against our souls. If you feel like the Christian life is a battlefield sometimes, you're right. Our sin nature is waging war against us, but we are not without weapons. We are not without the ability to fight. So everything you need in your daily life to live a godly life, his power enables. Everything you need to bite your tongue when your children are asking you the same question for the 186th time. Everything you need to not speak that critical word to a spouse. Everything you need to have a heart of humility as you fold laundry or scrub floors or do classwork or coursework that will all be mostly unseen and unacknowledged. His power is working in you to enable you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. There was a question in the study that asked, why do we not feel like we have everything we need for life and godliness? And this was a question that was resonating in my head and heart. Why do we feel lacking so often? Ladies, I think one possible answer is that our natural human desire is to want to depend on our own ability for these things. And dependent on my own ability, I will never be able to have all I need to live a godly life. No kind word, no humble heart, no sacrificial service on my own ever. We feel like we cannot do it because we truly cannot do it. It's only through his power. So if you're in a situation that you feel like you truly cannot cope with, no matter how minuscule or monumental, listen to this scripture out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God brought the Israelites to a place of desert, a place where they felt their physical needs. Perhaps you are feeling your physical needs, your need for sleep, your need for rest, your need for medicine and surgeries and follow-up appointments, your need to go in more directions than seem physically capable. God let the Israelites feel their need for hunger that they may know that they do not live by bread alone. And if we did not feel the depth of our physical and spiritual needs, I think it would fuel the flame of pride and self-righteousness of our own hearts. We would begin to believe that we are capable of living a godly life without the Lord. 
So the next time you are at your end and you feel like you cannot conquer one more sin, do one more day in the spiritual war, use that feeling to throw yourself on the God of creation who strengthens and sustains. Pray about your situation. Get friends to pray with you and rely on the Lord. I don't think we will ever feel like we have everything we need for godliness. I think the older we get, the more we quote John Newton, who says, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. So we may not feel like we have everything we need to live a godly life, but sisters, we absolutely do. We stand on this promise and in humility and desperation, we pray that the Lord works in our weakness because that is what he promises to do. The song, Tis So Sweet, to trust in Jesus says this, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him or nor. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. He has proved himself over and over in our lives. Think about all the times his divine power has granted you everything you've needed for life over and over and over again. So whatever you're facing this week, whatever situation seems too big, we pray, oh, for grace to trust him more. Everything we need for life and godliness comes through, once again, through the knowledge of him. This word knowledge, it's not going away. Peter's not done with it. This word refers to the knowledge of Christ, the encounter with Christ that we had at conversion and then the growth that continues afterward. The knowledge of Jesus is the means through which the power works in our life. So let this be a reminder to press on, press on in gaining the knowledge of Christ. This is what David Mathis, author of Habits of Grace, says about this practice of learning, of acquiring and living out knowledge of scripture. He says, the Christian faith is not a finite course of study for the front end of adulthood. Our mindset shouldn't be to do first the learning and then spend the rest of our lives drawing from that original deposit of knowledge. Rather, ongoing health in the Christian life is inextricably linked to ongoing learning. Ongoing health in the Christian life is inextricably linked to ongoing learning. So let's keep studying, keep learning together, friends. We have seven more weeks of study in the second Peter book. Let's finish as well as we begin. So Peter says this knowledge, it comes through him who called us. This calling is a word related to our salvation. It is sometimes called the effectual call and is understood as God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. The Westminster Catechism says this of calling. The effectual call to a sinner so overwhelms his natural inclination to rebel that he willingly places faith in Jesus Christ. When talking about this calling, you'll often hear the term effectual. That just means that it works. If God calls someone, that calling will lead to salvation. John 6 says no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. And that word draw, it can also mean drag. 
that drawing, that dragging, that is the calling of God on our lives. He calls us, he drags us to himself through the knowledge of Christ. It's a beautiful work of the Lord in our lives, right? And then when he calls us, he calls us to his own glory and excellence. One commentary describes his glory and excellence this way. When combined with glory, goodness refers to the divine moral excellence of Christ, focusing especially on the beauty of his goodness. Friends, when we are called to Christ, when we are given the gift of faith, our eyes were opened to behold his beauty. Our eyes were opened to see the glory and excellence of who Christ is. Who Christ is and who God is became attractive to us. And day by day, as we grow in our knowledge, as his divine power enables us, Christ becomes ever increasingly attractive. We see his glory and excellence in a way that changes our daily life. We are slaves to the worldly substitutes for divine beauty until the Spirit takes the veil from our minds and grants us to see with joy the beauty of the Lord. This week, friends, may the beauty of Christ propel you all the more to live a life of godliness as his divine power enables you. May you strive to grow in your knowledge in a way that transforms your daily life to look a bit more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ.